0: Too. So as soon as he says you're ready, all right, Blake, you're ready.
1: How about that one? Now well, we're good with that. But I, st- the presenter for the new system, please. Yes, I think it's on mine now. There's good news and there's bad news. Uh, the bad news is that technology doesn't like me. <laughs> the good news is I was teaching long before technology came around, so it's going to be okay. I've been trying to tell him we're going to. Yeah, we got it now. We're even going to do it the way I planned to do it, except just with different computer, different set of stuff. Thanks for inviting me back. Uh, we had some conversations in this room uh, a year ago that uh, made me wonder if some of you would ever want to see me again. <laughs> uh, because I brought you a rather controversial kind of topic, and we, uh, we wrestled with it together. And uh, I heard you wrestling in the first hour with some of the same kinds of stuff. What's happening in American culture, and how do we respond as Christians? Uh, but this, this year, I want to do something much different. I want us to go back uh, to the words of Jesus, and just simply raised the question, how are we doing? Uh, let me set the stage. I was five years old, and my grandfather, maternal grandfather, was dying of lung cancer. Uh, my parents, for whatever reason, decided that it would be an appropriate time for me to go see him for the last time. Uh, Grandpa had been in a hospital bed in his my aunt his daughter's home for months and uh, frankly he was not into seeing five-year-old kids anymore grandsons or otherwise and uh, the last words the last words that i ever heard him speak he said shut up we don't need rain a little bird a rain bird he perceived had perched in the bush outside the open window And he didn't care to hear songbirds anymore. Everything was an irritation. And so the last thing I remember hearing him say was, shut up, we don't need rain. Last words are weird. They're strange. Some of you know some things about last words. You remember the last words of a spouse? Or the last words of a parent? Or the last words of a child and those last words we hang on they stay with us sometimes those last words are a bit ironic Uh, I've been reading a recently read a a biography of Pete Maravich pistol Pete they called him and uh, Merovich's last words had a great deal of irony he he was in a basketball game pickup game uh, in Colorado Springs with some of the focus on the family staff And somebody noted that Pete didn't look very good and hollered across the court and said, Pete, you okay? And his last words were, I feel great. And he ran to the other end of the floor and died. The irony in that, especially when you know that this is a guy who came to know Jesus uh, later in his life. And, you know, I think there's a spiritual implication to that word. I feel great. Sometimes last words stick with us in ways that probably aren't very productive or helpful. Uh, my brother-in-law's in the process of, of buying a farm, uh, and uh, I, don't, I don't think Jim needs a farm. It's his business, but I don't think he needs it, and I don't think he wants it. But here's the story. Uh, his grandmother, in her last words to him, Uh, spoke about a neighbor that she didn't care for and said, I don't want him to ever get my farm. So I don't want it to go to auction. And Jim said, Grandma, don't worry about it. I'll buy it if I need to. And so now that generation in between, his mother has passed away, and Jim's in the process of buying a farm because of Grandma's last words. Man, sometimes those last words are so powerful. They stick with us. We can't escape them. They're there. They're instructive. Which brings us to the topic of the week, the last words that Jesus spoke. I want to take you this morning. We may look at some of the others, but there are several accounts. Uh, But this morning, let's go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 28. And while you're turning to Matthew chapter 28, Let me suggest to you that this is, uh, or remind you, this is a post-resurrection story. Uh, This is an account where Jesus has already risen from the dead. He has already appeared to several uh, groups of folks. We know from other Gospels, more than 500 at one time. I defy you. Try to get five of your friends to tell the same lie and make it last for 2,000 years. That won't work. 500 people, so I'm all at the same time, and there are still those who say it's a lie. I can't quite figure that one out. But nevertheless, now he says to the 11, his disciples, less Judas, to the 11, a particular hillside in Galilee, come. And so they come to the mountain, and Jesus speaks. I'm in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Listen for the words. Are you ready? Go, therefore, and make disciples. I don't usually stop in the middle of a sentence, but for emphasis, let me do that. We'll come back and look at it a little bit, I promise. Go make disciples. So let me just ask you, church, camp, 2,000 years later, how are we doing? The last words of grandma were so powerful that Jim's buying a farm. And yet the last words of Jesus, go make disciples, I submit to you, there's evidence to suggest we have kind of just laid back there in the background someplace. We'll get to it. How are you doing? How's your disciple making going? Part of the answer depends on what you call disciple. And so I want us to ask the question, What is a disciple? How is it different than a convert? Some of you who have the gift of evangelism are making converts. I'm glad for that. Are you making disciples? Is that the same thing? I found a couple of definitions that are not scriptural. You can argue them, and we'll give you an opportunity to do that in a moment. Uh, But uh, they were at least instructive as I put together this presentation. One author says that a disciple is one who learns from a teacher how to live like the teacher. Uh, Those of us who are in education recognize how rare that is. Uh, I'm I'm going home to Marion to begin my last semester of full-time teaching. Uh, told the university when contracts came out that I thought I was getting old enough, somebody else probably ought to do this and could do it better. And uh, I have agreed to do the fall semester and then I'm going to be in retirement status. Doesn't mean I won't teach anymore. It means I'll be an adjunct from time to time in the fall when it's warm. (laughs) So part part of me knows that that's God's direction. Time to do that. And there's another part of me that's a bit nostalgic right now. Uh, I've been at Indiana Wesleyan full time for 13 years. I was 10 years prior to that as an adjunct, and some of those adjunct years I taught more courses than full time people. So I've been I've been around for a while, and I have about uh, 250 students uh, per year in the same class. So. Uh, in the same course. So I've been thinking that I probably have seen, just at Indiana Wesleyan. Westland, and I did a couple of years here and there trying to find my way earlier, uh, but I've taught at Indiana Wesleyan Westland more than 6,000 kids. I can count on one hand the number of young people that would fit that definition that have been through my classroom. A- and that's not because I've failed. It's just the way it works. Learning from the teacher how to live like the teacher? No, man, my students come into my classroom and say, now, how can I get three hours credit and get out of this mess? (laughs) How can I I get... I don't want to give speeches. I don't want to learn to communicate. I learned how to talk. My mama taught me. I don't need all this stuff. Just get me out of here. And we never get to... uh, What do you think about this in terms of real life? You know, it just... It just came to me, and I hadn't thought about this, but I made more disciples probably the, the semester that my wife was in chemo and we were driving back and forth uh, saving her life because there were young people then who said, man, what's that like? Let's talk about that, about real life. But for the most part, they don't care. So I don't know about how, you know, just think about how rare that is. And then look at how we're doing, church. At Jesus' command, go make disciples. Well, it's no wonder. Uh, There are a lot of folks out there saying, what do I need to do to learn to live like the master? John Oswald uh, wrote an article uh, just about a year ago where he gives another definition. He says a disciple is one who walks with the master great article where he talks about the fact that we walk with Jesus, walk with Jesus, walk with Jesus, and he doesn't use this first definition, but I think it fits so well, because you know what happens? You walk with Jesus, walk with Jesus, walk with Jesus, serious about my life with Jesus, and one day I realize, whoa, you know what? I've learned from Jesus how to live like Jesus. It's a process. I, I, we're not going to, no magic formulas From this class this week, I wish there were. Wouldn't it be so much easier if we could say, okay, Jesus said, go make disciples. So here are the three things you must do. And once you get these three things done, you'll be fulfilling the great, but it doesn't work that way. It's a lifestyle process of building relationships with people. And we'll talk about what people in just a little bit. But first, let's look at what Jesus said about disciples. There are several passages, but I invite your focus on just three of them, three qualities that Jesus was looking for in a disciple. He said, first, a disciple is one who lives the word. Turn with me to John's gospel. And in John's gospel, chapter 8, Jesus spoke to this business of discipleship. John, chapter 8, he said in verse 31. Are you ready? Have you found it? John 8, 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, listen to the words, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. Say it with me real loud so they can hear it downtown. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. What did Jesus say about discipleship? He said we ought to be about the business of teaching people to abide in the word. Now we can begin to answer the question, how we we doing? Uh, I, I heard the tail end of your previous class here, and, and I'm being told that I should have gotten here a little bit earlier. I was trying to put the finishing touches on this, but, you know, I'll try to do better. Because what y'all were talking about is what does it mean in American culture today to abide in the Word? How's that, how's that working out? How's that affecting? We spent a lot of time, a lot of angst in this room last year talking about that very thing. How are we doing at convincing Americans to abide in the Word? I submit to you, not well. They don't even read the Word. I'll show you the data in a moment, let alone walking in it, living it. John said, Be ye doers of the Word. James said, Be ye doers of the Word, not hearers only. And I I submit to you, people who are actually doing the word, living the word, abiding the word, uh, man, that's a rare bird. Jesus went on to say, a disciple bears much fruit. Look with me in John chapter 15, a, a similar passage where Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says in 15 verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and listen, here it comes, and so prove to be my disciples. Now, what does that mean? I'm supposed to bear fruit in order to demonstrate that I'm a disciple. How do I bear fruit? What does that mean? I think there are two possibilities. Listen, with, work with me here. In our garden at home, we've got an area that's got some viny stuff with yellow flowers on it. And Nancy and I believe that we planted cantaloupe there. <laughs> in fact, we're pretty sure that when we went to the greenhouse, we came home with plants that were marked as cantaloupe. But boy, they sure look like watermelon to me. I it's it's a little bit too early in North. Central Indiana, to be certain, but I think we got watermelon. See, a, a cantaloupe vines go to bear cantaloupe, a watermelon vines go to bear watermelon, a, a, a tomato plants go to bear tomatoes. So, bear much fruit. You and I ought to be about the business of bringing others into the kingdom. That's one possibility. You glorify the Father when you bear much fruit. Let me suggest a second possibility. Paul said, the fruit of the Spirit is love. I know there's a whole bunch of other stuff there, I read it. Joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, and so on. But my first grade teacher taught me that if it's a singular verb, there ought to be a singular, whatever you call that after it. Object, I think. Is that right? Yeah. No? Yes, I got one yes and one no, so nobody else knows either. That's cool. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I'm just funny with the fruit of the Spirit is love. And that love issues in gentleness, peace, patience, long suffering. So I'm not sure which Jesus meant when he said to his disciples bear much fruit. He may have been saying, Hey, you're my disciple. Make some more disciples. This may be a precursor to the Great Commission. Or he may have been saying, Disciples, be peaceful people, patient people, gentle people, long-suffering people, loving people. And then third, Jesus said a disciple. Boy, this is the one we North Americans hate. A disciple is one who pays the price. Look with me in Luke chapter 14 tough, tough passage. I'm not going to try to tear it all apart, but I don't think we ought to just overlook it because it's tough and we don't understand it. I'm in Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple now how do you square that up with loving folks uh, that's tough I said to somebody earlier today I-, I believe the word this way if I find one passage of scripture disagrees with another passage of scripture it's not that the scripture is not accurate it's that Blake doesn't understand it correctly and so I'm saying what is am I supposed to hate folks in order to be a disciple or love folks in order to be a disciple Well, my intuition is, when I look at the rest of the word, I'm supposed to love folks. So what am I missing here? I think if we go on to verse 27, it becomes more clear. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I think what Jesus is saying is we need to be so committed to being Jesus people that even if we have to turn our back on our parents, even if we have to turn our back on our siblings, even if we must turn our back on our kids, even if we must turn our back on our own physical lives, we still pick Jesus when we have to choose. I believe that's what he's saying. And if you look on down in verse 33, that seems to me to be summarized and, and supported. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has... Cannot be my disciple. Man, the standard for discipleship is high. It's tough. And Jesus didn't say on the hillside, go be a good disciple. He said, go make disciples. Go get some other folks on board. So how are we doing? 2,000 years later, church, how are we doing at making disciples? Well, before we... Before we launch, I want to spend a little bit of time seeing if we can't make even more certain that we are um, on the same page with regard to what is a disciple. I have printed six case studies, biographies, if you will, of some some folks who are involved in the church. Let me tell you the source of these every one of these represents a real person. The names have been changed to protect the guilty and in some cases there are two or three or four people who have been kind of blended together to even further camouflage and give you more to discuss. But these represent real folks. I need us to be in six discussion groups. This is not going to be easy. Let's see. How about a front and back here? And some of you kind of in the middle may need to move back to help facilitate that. And the same here, a front and back. And uh, that would be four, and we could do that here. And then we're going to need somebody in each one of those groups. Nancy, will you help me? We need somebody in each one of those groups then uh, to take leadership and make sure that everybody in your group has heard the case, because there won't be enough. You, t- you get these four here. and uh, kind of move together and if some of you need to move over there to get away from others I want you to spend about 10 or 15 minutes group leader right here and uh, talk about the, your case is this a disciple what does it mean to be a disciple what's your definition of discipleship uh, who will help me group leader group, there's a group leader I saw him almost ready to volunteer but that's not part of the American way all right? So if you'd cluster around the people who have the case and just talk about that for a little bit. What does it mean to be a disciple? Is this person a disciple? Now listen carefully before you begin your discussion. Let me let me say just another word I should have said earlier. You're going to say, "Wait a minute, I'm not supposed to judge people." Right? You know, the, the greatest virtue in American culture is non-judgmentalism. That's culture. That is not biblical. That's not scriptural. Or think of it this way. One of my friends said, okay, I'm not judging anybody, but the Bible says, by their fruit she shall know them, so I'm fruit inspected. All right? So do some fruit inspecting and come to conclusions. Are we going to call this individual on your biography a disciple or no? Why not? Why? What makes a disciple? Go. All right, let's, uh, let's report. I, I want to do it. Let's do it the quick way first, and then we'll do it the more laborious way. Which group found a disciple? Anybody find a disciple? Right here, we got a disciple. Who you got? Great, great. Oh, good. I'm glad you came to that conclusion. Tell, somebody speak for your group. Tell us the story. Hold on one second. Well, okay, I'll tell the story. Uh, Frank. Frank's a friend of mine, by the way. That's his real name. He doesn't care. (laughs) He doesn't. He doesn't. Frank's an alcoholic. His addiction has stolen a great deal from his life. His girlfriend left him because of his drunkenness. His parents told him not to come into their home. And recently, at the age of 33, Frank accepted Jesus at a rescue mission. Uh, That's a Grant County rescue mission, Marion, Indiana, where I'm on the board. with the help of the Spirit, he's been clean and sober for six months, 24 days uh, at the time of this writing. It continues. The program director at the mission is leading Frank in daily Bible studies. He's enrolled in life change program at the mission where he hopes to learn new life skills. Is Frank a disciple? And you all said yes. Why? What what drew you to that conclusion? Help us. (laughs) Um,
0: Well, we evaluated each of those things. Um, Lives the Word. He is um, daily in um, daily Bible studies, and so he is—he's um, studying, and he's as far as living the word. He is has become clean and sober for six months and 24 days. So we think that that is evidence that he is living the word. It is also evidence that he is bearing much fruit because he had a life before where it wasn't following um, the principles of the Bible. Yep. Um, he's enrolled in life cha- in the life change program. He's continuing to live the word, bear the fruit. And paying the price, he already, you know, he's paying the price of, he's getting rid of, uh, gotten rid of the the sins that were obvious in the story. Um, And so he has paid the price in that way, which also shows that he's bearing much fruit.
1: Okay, very good. Is there a, a dissenting view in your group? Everybody,
2: okay, good. We'll listen. I think it's a play on the word disciple. He's being discipled. But he okay. has not showed evidence yet of conquering that part of his life where he was, his addiction is so severe, and he hasn't had opportunity to be a witness to others, and he hasn't been persecuted for his new beliefs. Okay. It's all right. All so he's in a very safe, controlled environment. He is. And he is being discipled and being prepared to go. I've seen people from his background, Turn cities upside down, mm-hmm. and he's yeah. got tremendous potential. Yeah, but it hasn't been realized yet. You
1: are you are absolutely right. Having worked with uh, drug and alcohol addiction for a couple of years now at the rescue mission, you know Frank's not out of the woods yet. No question about that. Uh, pray for him when you find that paper in your Bible and think about it. He is a real guy. And uh, uh, on the other hand, how many months does it take before we're willing to call somebody a disciple? How how long do how long do we go and say well, you ain't one of us,
2: uh, Doctor Neff. He is in a position right now, like the majority of quote unquote Christians in our churches today. Okay, say more about as that. Far as far as spiritual development and uh, being a witness.
1: Okay, all right, good. I I think both of you are right. I think your group came to exactly the right conclusion, Frank frank is an encouragement to me he's an encouragement to the mission that doesn't mean frank won't be our greatest disappointment in a few weeks Uh, but there are a lot of us praying and working hard to see if that doesn't happen somebody some group uh, was looking at judy's life judy accepted jesus a few years ago to revival in a local church for several months she grew in her faith even influenced some of her co-workers to find church homes and consider the claims of christ but lately judy struggled in the faith her mother has cancer And Judy's very frustrated at God. How could a loving God allow such a kind and unselfish woman like my mother to suffer, she asks. She's quit attending church. She's quit reading her Bible. What's the point, she asks a friend. God doesn't seem to care about me and those that I love. Is Judy a disciple? Go.
3: Well, our group, I'm not certain if we're unanimous, but... um but what we came up with and, and deliberated, Judy originally was a disciple. She was discipling people and bringing them to the Lord. But then she fell. And um, we, there was a comparison to um, Peter where Peter fell for a moment, but he, I mean, he's a, a great disciple. We don't know what Judy is going to do with her life. Right now she's not discipling She is not a disciple is what we came up with, but we still have hopes for Judy that she will, in discussing and talking with people, will become a disciple again.
1: Yeah, I hope all of our groups will come to that kind of conclusion that we haven't given up on Judy. Uh, There's, you know, there's there's potential here. Uh, that's a rhetorical question. I presume you're not looking for me for an answer. Yeah.
0: Can you repeat the question so the audio hears what the question was? S- say it real loud for me. The us. question was?
2: Why do Christians feel that they
3: shouldn't
0: have suffering in their life? Why do Christians feel what's, they shouldn't have suffering in their life?
1: What's interrupted Judy's life is suffering in her mother's life. That seems to have derailed her discipleship. And, and the, the question... I still hope it's a rhetorical question. I don't want to have to answer it. But anyway, <laughs> uh, the question that's before us: Why, why do we think she should be suffer free? I, I would, I would submit to you that somebody who discipled Judy didn't didn't deal with the real facts of life. Um, if if you think you're going to get out without a struggle, think again. Uh, we all have them. Your time's coming. Go. Yeah, we
4: also talked about uh, she put her mother above God.
1: Okay, yeah, there's a bit of an idolatry issue going on here, isn't there? Thank you for bringing that to our attention. Uh, Yeah, Judy, uh, yeah. Anyone else? Group? All right. John accepted Christ at youth camp. I think it was Bayshore, but I'm not sure. (laughs) Now, he's a composite of several folks I've known, so he might have been Bayshore. Anyway, he accepted at a youth camp when he was 14. It was a life-changing moment, caused a change in the people he called friends and his personal activities. John attended a great Bible-teaching church during his high school years. Now he's a freshman at a large state university. This is also a commercial, by the way. There are a lot of Saturday evening activities at his school, so John's not gotten up in time to search for a suitable church in his university town. He's begun to party a little bit with some of his fellow freshmen. He forgot to bring his Bible with him when he came to school, so until he goes home for fall break, there won't be any devotions. And John recently explained his views on Christianity to a friend saying, I believe Jesus was the Son of God and that he rose from the dead. I'm just not sure what difference that makes to anybody today. John a disciple? So, a
4: lot of unknown information, but again, taking the three criteria, uh, we thought, at least at this particular moment, no, John is not being a disciple. Um, Could be similar to Judy's situation. Um, We don't know exactly what he did after he had that life-changing moment. Um, So he could have been, but this particular time doesn't seem like he is living it out. uh, Not bearing fruit. Um, And he seems pretty comfortable, so he's not paying uh, a particular price. Right. Um, now, we had some age-specific things we talked about. Um, just because he didn't bring his, his quote-unquote word Bible, um, most kids today in his age don't even use that as their Bible. Okay. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean he's not reading it, but this says he
1: won't be doing any daily devotion, so maybe we can infer that he's not anyway. All right. Uh, so if he really wanted to, he could find a way to do that without his printed Bible. Yes. Yep. Good. Yeah. So All right. Uh, If John gets, uh, do I want to divide the house yet or not? Yeah, what the heck. (laughs) If John doesn't make it home for fall break because of a tragic automobile accident, do you expect to see him in heaven? Yes? Say, speak, would you hand the microphone back to her? She's very certain.
2: Yes, because he says that he believes that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and he rose from the dead. Okay. So that is... You can't go to heaven except in belief of Jesus Christ. Okay. And he announces he does that. So good, yeah.
1: good analysis. Is that your statement or you want to make another? No, I'm good. So here's, here's what I want us to see. Jesus said, go make disciples. I think, church, we're doing a reasonably good job, many of our churches, of making converts. And John's a good example of that. But John has never learned from the teacher how to live like a teacher. And so what's going to happen is as time passes, John is going to become less and less and less a fruit-bearing disciple. He's missing the relationship. He's what? Missing the relationship. Missing, good, good point. Missing the dynamic, fruitful relationship that he could have with Jesus Christ. So if we're putting all this together, and we're making some quantum leaps in the interest of time, but as we're putting all this together, what we're saying is that Jesus has called us to help people find that fruitful relationship, that lovable, that loving relationship that so many people in our, in our world today are missing. Good. Uh, where am I? I'm here. Uh, Amy grew up in a Christian home, has been a regular church attender all of her life. Probably a Methodist. On many issues, however, Amy does not agree with the stand of her church. Probably a Methodist. (laughs) For example, her church is strongly against the consumption of alcohol and illegal drugs. She's a Methodist. (laughs) Amy does not think either of those are significant. She personally uses illegal drugs from time to time, and recently her church heard a seminar on how to win others to Christ. Amy declined to attend, saying, why would I do something like that? I found Christ on my own. Let others do the same. Is Amy a disciple?
3: Uh, no.
1: <laughs> no? Uh, Amy
3: sounds pretty rebellious. Sounds like Amy wants to do what Amy wants to do when Amy wants to do it and doesn't really want to dig into the word and find out what Christ wants her to do and doesn't sound like Amy would make any life changes if she did discover God had, or had another way. She sounds like she's living her own life right now but she grew up in a christian home so she has those words to use and maybe that's her own justification isn't it isn't it interesting
1: okay. that amy's got more basis for discipleship in her background than frank does and yet i'll tell you what if if i got to go before jesus and speak to my living out the great commission i want to take frank with me not amy yeah Okay, well, she's making the point that there may not be a conversion yeah. experience here. Go ahead.
3: Right, it doesn't, she says she, I've, it's It's her rebuttal to someone saying, you know, you should go to this seminar. She says, I found Christ on my own, let others do the same. Okay, so that would seem to I imply don't even like she know, did find it, it wouldn't be ours to say whether she's going to go to heaven or not, but not
0: sure.
1: Okay, again, did you hear the distinction being made now? When we really get serious about this and think about who are these folks, Then we all want to make some distinctions between a convert and a disciple. And I'm with you there. I'm 100% with you. And I think the word is with us there. Uh, But it's tough, isn't it? Jackson's a high school student who met Jesus a few months ago. He began to attend youth group at the church of some of his friends. When others in Jackson's high school found out he was attending church and youth group, they began to make fun of him for being a religious fanatic. Jackson's now attending the church and youth group less. No one wants to be labeled a fanatic, he explained. Sure, I believe in Jesus, but I'll wait till later in life to do this whole church thing. That way no one will be paying any attention, making fun of my beliefs. Is Jackson a disciple?
4: Uh, so we had a few, uh, just we had a big group, we had a few kind of segments talking, so I can't pretend to, to talk for everybody. But uh, based on what we were able to discuss, uh, essentially uh, on point number three, uh, he falls flat. Yeah. Uh, just if you're looking black and white, yes, no, if Ma- marking no on one of those means it's no across the board, then it's a no. Um, but there's a lot of nuance to that. And one thing I just want to uh, include, this is just my own thing, um, is that one piece of hope that I see, and I think that we were, you already spoke to it with uh, saying that you still have hope for others, is that none of these stories are complete.
1: Absolutely. So Thank um, you. Preach that. No
4: matter where each person is in their process of discipleship, not yet entered discipleship, um, the story is incomplete.
1: I think the message is, where there is a believer in Jesus Christ, there is still hope for us to do what the Great Commission asks us to do. Would, would you go there with me? I think that's the message. We, none of these folks do we want to write off. Uh, none of these folks do we want to say, ah. In fact, what I've been learning as I've tried to sort out the difference between a convert and a disciple, I think there could going be a lot of folks in heaven that will just absolutely blow your mind and mine but i don't think we should properly label them disciples nor do i think we should say well my job's done this business of disciple making is relationship building i got to find some folks in order to fulfill the great commission i have to find some folks that are not yet walking with the teacher because of what they learn from the teacher are not walking with the master and all the definitional stuff that we talked about, and I've got to find ways to help them do that, or I'm not fulfilling the Great Commission. This is about me and you, church. It's not about them. Uh, We are not spending 15 minutes here pointing the finger and saying, oh, that one's not going to make it, that one's not. No, what I'm trying to get us to do is to say, what do I have to do to help these people? Because Jesus said to make disciples. Finally, one last one. Tim and Sarah, this, this will divide the house. There we go. There goes half my crowd for tomorrow. Tim and Sarah were married six months ago after living together for three years. They have a 10-week-old son. They're both employed in retail establishments in their town. They both grew up in the church, but now Sunday's the only day they have to sleep in. So they've continued that growing-up lifestyle. So they've not continued their growing-up lifestyle. Recently, Tim's father challenged the couple to find a good church and begin to tithe their income to the work of the Lord. He explained that tithing is an important habit for young Christians because God blesses those who tithe to his kingdom. Tim and Sarah talked it over after the lesson from Tim's dad and agreed there simply was not enough money to give away 10%, still take proper care of their young family. We wouldn't have anything left for ourselves, Sarah summarized the conversation. Our Tim and Sarah disciples.
4: Uh, uh, let me try to sum up what the conversation- Good. Um, I, I think in general, we would say they're not demonstrating characteristics of a disciple. Um, but this is a very difficult thing to do because you can't um, evaluate their lives without looking in the mirror. Um, and we all realize that we. Um, Almost go through like a I l-
1: designed the case that way, huh?
4: Yes. Uh, <laughs> we go through a lot of the same challenges, and we, we all generally agree that um, we can relate we know how difficult it is to be disciplined um, with young children especially to get up in the morning and go to church and make the effort um, to figure out how to make all the finances work. Um, But on the other hand, um, we recognize that they are failing in many ways to, um, for example, uh, pay the price um, to give up some things and sacrifice some things um, along the way. Um, One other thing we noted too in the conversation was the advice they got from their father um, and how so often we make discipleship or being a disciple or a Christian about checking the boxes. Yep. Just give 10%, just go to church, just go do this. And it's the wrong way. They first have to understand why they need to tithe and, and, and how you're supposed to
1: tithe. That, that, was, that was my follow-up question. How, how's Tim's dad doing fulfilling the Great Commission? And I would say I got less confidence in him than I do in this couple. I'm I'm stepping out on a limb here and taking your time. Sorry, but yeah, no,
4: that's all right. That's go ahead. Um, it's exactly what we had what we had mentioned. So, um, and I I think I summed up kind of the general conversation that we had. And I just wanted to add one thing. Um, this drew me back to um, why we were talking. Jesus, at one time in Scripture, said um, it shall be easier for. A camel to go through the eye of a needle than to go into the kingdom of heaven, um, and we all understand that's an impossibility without God, and that's what He was saying. I think this is kind of a similar situation where Jesus is telling us um, the cost of discipleship, the actual being a discipleship, may be impossible at a human level without the work of God in our lives, and I'm not sure that can ever be complete until that moment. Um, God makes it complete in our lives, makes that work complete in our lives, that it is that process, that we may never actually uh, truly achieve these things on earth in our human
1: flesh. Very good. Well spoken. Thank you for that, that good analysis of a tough case. What I wanted you to see there, it seems to me that this young couple we couldn't label as mature disciples because they're not living in the word. They're not abiding by the word. On the other hand, I'm more concerned, as I said, for this, this want-to-be disciple maker who's out telling people, these are the rules, you got to do it this way or you're lost, you're gone. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He went too far, okay. She's a lot more charitable than I am. Uh, yeah, she's, she's saying he, he's trying to get them involved in the church. He just went too far in his statement. And I'll give him that. But I also want you all to see that's not what we're talking about uh, from my perspective. When Jesus said, go make disciples, he's not talking, A, about getting them in church. And he's not talking, B, about getting them to fulfill a whole list of requirements that he thinks are important. He's trying to get them to walk with the master and to be like the teacher. Is that making sense? Here's the data. 73% of Americans self-identify as Christians. And I understand from your previous session, and I I know where he's coming from, where he got the data, that's on the decline. This is two years ago. Yeah, two years, 2016, uh, Barna Foundation study. The way they did self-identification... They simply ask people at random if they're Christians, and they got answers like this. Well, yeah, I suppose I went to I was baptized when I was a kid. Uh, are you a Christian? Well yeah, you know what? My grandma reads the Bible every day. Uh, are you a Christian? Uh, these are different folks, you understand. They just ask, uh, well, yeah, I'm sure not a Muslim. Those kind of answers. and they discovered that 73% of, of Americans, or about 238 million people identify themselves as Christians. That number's on the decline. This none of the above stuff that you were talking about in the first session is very, very accurate, very, very real. My data shouldn't be seen as in conflict with that. I just picked a point in time, and you all were talking about a uh, a trajectory there in terms of the data. But here's what I wanted you to see. Of that 73%, Barna Foundation went ahead and asked them follow-up questions, and here's what they discovered. Less than half of them attend regularly a worship service once a month. The Bible, once a month, not once a week, once a month. The Bible says, forsake not the gathering of yourselves together, and you know, so this one disciple maker was trying to get people to, to act more like disciples. Seventy-three percent say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Would you go to church, well, yeah, I went last year at Easter. It was really cool uh, kind of an attitude. Less than half ever read the Scripture outside of worship. If you're going to abide in the Word, it would seem to me that you've got to know what it says. And if the only time it's being read is when you're in a worship service and you don't do that, then, you know, what, what, this, these are not disciples. Less than a quarter volunteer in any given week at their church. That's why most of you in this room are volunteering over and over and over and over again, because there are a whole lot of folks on your rolls and a whole lot of folks in your community who say they belong to your church, but they're not doing much at your church. And then, back to this problem area, 1 in 20 give a 10. So, uh, those of you who objected to that little piece of abiding in the Word, You're not alone. There's a whole lot of believers who are objecting to that little piece of the word. One of the reasons, by the way, uh, that I hear a lot about you, you know, my church is going a direction that I don't believe in, I don't agree with. And give to Basel Camp, for crying out loud. Go someplace where people are being discipled, where you can fulfill the Great Commission. And that's not about amounts. That's about places. We can talk about amounts over lunch if you want to. So Barna went on. And they went back in history and found eight characteristics of people who, who follow an orthodox faith. I'm struggling a little bit for words because they did not use the word disciple. I think they could have. I think it fits what we're talking about here. But what I'm trying to set up is a contrast here. 73% of American people say, yeah, I'm a Christian. What percentage are really disciples? would be another question now here are the eight characteristics come from ancient Christianity these are things that for 2,000 years Orthodox Christians have believed we all know that the faith is undergoing a transition and I confess to you I struggle almost daily working in a Christian institution with what of that transition is cultural and what is attack on Christianity you know I I don't have that down I'm not ready to answer that question, but I just want you to know it's i str- I'm remembering when Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College back in the 1960s, and Dennis <laughs> and I talked about this much, much later than that, but he drew the line. He drew a line in the sand on blue jeans. We are not having blue jeans on this campus. Period. End of conversation. They're not disciples if they weren't. And Dennis said to me later, boy, that was dumb. That, that was culture. That was not Christianity. Uh, and I. his words, he's gone to a great eternal reward, but his words continue to ring in my head as I look at kids on my campus, uh, as I look at things that happen at Basial Camp, frankly. And I say, wait a minute. Why? It's okay. It's, it's, not a, it's, it's not an affront to the book. It's culture. But some of it is an affront to it. So, I'm, you know, do you understand my struggle? I hope, I'm, I'm looking for, a f- I get a few nods. I think there were enough old people and young people that I can go on. Because it, some of us generational. I understand that. And woe to those of us who don't understand that. Because the youngest folks in this room are the future of the church. I want them to be disciples. So I gotta find, what does it mean to be a disciple and what does it mean to be 21st century American? Here's what Barna and company said are the essentials. These are the eight statements that they ask people, do you believe this, 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 and this, that we might equate with discipleship. Have you made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ? That's not cultural, folks. That's scriptural. That's biblical. That's what it means to be an evangelical Christian. You must make a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, and that must be a life commitment. Do you realize, though, how countercultural that is? For we live in a culture where people don't make long-term commitments to anything. You can't sell a magazine subscription over two years. I don't know where I'm going to be. I mean, I want to read that junk anymore. We are asking people to make a life commitment to Jesus Christ whom they have not seen, and they will not make a life commitment to a, to a marital partner whom they have. That's the reality of the culture in which we live. So this is not a a nothing kind of statement, but Barn and Company said, have you made that kind of commitment? Second, do you believe the Bible is accurate in all that it teaches? This is my soapbox, this is my pet peeve, this is where I'm at. I think the reality is, in many of our churches, we are not arguing so much about the stuff that comes to the surface as we are arguing the authenticity of the Word of God. Either the scripture is true or it's not. And we are having that debate, church. We are having that debate in the midst of a culture that believes nothing is true. There's no such thing as truth. Everything is relative. Uh, might be right for you, but you might have a different view on that. Well, you don't know what kind of experiences I've had. You didn't grow up where I grew up. Uh, And so everything, everything becomes relative. Orthodox Christians for 2,000 years have said, The scripture is not relative. It is true. The Bible is true in all that it affirms. How can you abide in a word if the word is relative? How can we make disciples based upon the word of God if we don't believe the truth of the word of God? Third, you may. I don't know where it came from, but you can speak.
2: make them, cover them up, uh, and, and people thought, you know, it was kind of a prude, and maybe I was, Yeah. but along the same thing, uh, the denomination I was involved in, uh, the Bible, only parts of it, you know, pertain to where we are today, and then I had a preacher tell me that, and it, it made me so disgusted tattoo on my arm, 2 Timothy
1: chapter 3:15. If you're under 30, give him a hand.
2: <laughs>
1: exactly what I'm talking about. I have a feeling, I have a feeling that those of us who have that objection are going to have the same attitude that Dennis had about blue jeans down the road. And you're, you're leading us. Yeah. Say faith is important to their life today. Do you believe, is your faith really relevant? That's that's what a lot of people who are looking to whether or not they're going to be disciples are asking. Well, you know, you go to church, but what's that got to do with life? I got these real issues, these real problems. So is your faith relevant? Third, they believe they have a personal responsibility to share their beliefs. This is going to rapidly become a legal issue in America, not just a faith issue. Uh, Those of us who believe the Bible is true, that believe that Jesus died for our sins, have a a sense that I want everyone to know that great news, that good news. Uh, But uh, then I become uh, a person who is not uh, tolerant of other people. And as I said earlier, tolerance has become the great cultural virtue in America. I don't find it in Scripture in the same way that it's preached in America, Uh, but it has become the uh, the great cultural virtue. Five believe that Satan exists. Somebody challenged me on this one some time ago said, wait a minute, where'd they get that nonsense? I don't have to believe the devil to be a Christian. Uh, now, I guess you don't. But what are you getting saved from if you don't believe there's a, a, a real evil? If you don't have a real evil out there harassing you, you don't need a real savior, it seems to me. Uh, but anyway, again, not my stuff. I don't want to necessarily defend all eight of these tenets. What I want you to see is these are eight tenets that down through history, the church has affirmed. And Barnes saying, so how many people today in America believe them? Believe that Jesus lived a sinless life on earth. Uh, if he's God, that shouldn't be that much of an issue, I think. But for some, it is. Uh, believe that eternal salvation is available through grace, not works. Listen to the words. What I see in a lot of our churches, beloved, is this. It's kind of a ledger sheet Christianity where I put the credits on one ledger and I put the debits on the other. And I really do good work in this volunteer work that I'm doing. But, yeah, I got this problem, and I know I don't match up to Scripture over here. But I really love my neighbors. But, yeah, I really don't have time to go to church. I got all this good stuff going on. And our understanding of the faith is we get all done, we do a balance sheet, and if my good stuff outweighs my bad stuff, I'm in. That is so counter-Christian. That is so counter-biblical. That is not true. Instead, what the Bible teaches is, as most of you in this room are aware, that Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life. Jesus Christ and his grace saved me. And all the good junk that I have done, both before and since, he calls, very gently, filthy rags. Finally, believe that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect deity who created the universe and continues to rule it. Do you believe God created the heavens and the earth and all that's within it? That's what they ask. And man, as as we move farther and farther and farther and farther down a slippery slope that is the faith in America today, it's more and more difficult for people to affirm that as true. So, one, two, three, four, five, six, (coughs) excuse me. Barna and Company ask those 73% of Americans who said, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. Great. Do you believe this, 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 and this? And they went down the eight. How many do you suppose they got who believed all eight? I heard a number, but I don't work. Five percent. What do you think? You see, huh? You're going ten. I got five now, ten. Who will give me 15 Three percent. Wow, the eternal pessimist up here. <laughs> the answer is seven percent. Seven percent of the people in America in 2016. Of the people in America in 2016, uh, Barna Foundation. I got it. I got it noted on there. So er, so low. Uh, Barna Research Group, State of the Church, 2016, September 15, 2016, and it's online. www.barna.com/research/state-of-the-church-2016. Seven percent. So it seems to me that what we're saying is there's discipleship work to do. The question is, how are we going to do it? What's a disciple maker to do? And I want to suggest real quickly, I know we're out of time, real quickly, three things, and this is where we're headed uh, over the course of our time. First, please, 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 please evaluate your own discipleship. You look at those eight and you say, well, I agree with six of those. You may be absolutely right. I don't think all eight of those, frankly, are essential for salvation, let alone discipleship. Uh, you know, we can have a discussion about that. Get with some folks in this room who have heard all that we've said and, and have a conversation about that. Do you really think it's necessary to believe that Satan exists? And what, is Nephoph a deep end? Is Barna nuts? What does that mean? You, know, you see what I'm saying? Uh, but evaluate your own discipleship. You cannot make a disciple if you are not a disciple. Second, Make disciples in the Spirit's power. I hope that we have seen in a variety of ways through biography, through case studies, and through this data that Barnard and Company put together that there's a lot of work to be done, and you will burn yourself out if you go forth from Bayshore Camp to try to make disciples of every person you encounter who's not a disciple. It ain't going to happen. So I'm convinced that what we need to be doing more than any other thing is Working in partnership with God's Holy Spirit. Go where He sends you. Make disciples where He puts you. Uh, Work uh, at discipleship under the Spirit's influence and power. And then, third, and this is where we're going the rest of the week make disciples as you go. Jesus said, Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That word go, there are 30 different words or parts of speech that Jesus could have used in Greek that would have been translated into English, go. So the one that he used is significant, and here's what it means. As you are going, make disciples. This is not about, well, I give 10 bucks a month to a missionary in Siberia, so I have fulfilled the Great Commission. Good. I'm glad for your 10 bucks a month, and the missionary in Siberia is even more grateful. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. The missionary community, by the way, my daughter is a career missionary, and she and I had a discussion on this the other day. She disagrees profoundly, but let me tell you anyway. The missionary community has co-opted the Great Commission and let too many regular Christians in America off the hook. It's not about giving 10 bucks to a missionary every month or even making a four-year commitment. It's about living the Great Commission. As you are going to work, make disciples. As you are going to school, make disciples. As you are going to church, where there are probably less than 7% in some of our churches who are really disciples, make disciples. As you are going to the marketplace, make disciples. As you are driving down I-69, make disciples. And so what we want to do tomorrow through Friday is to look at just four instances where we might do that. We're going to start tomorrow with, as you are going, pray. You can pray for disciples as you go. How do we do that? What's that look like? How could that change? And believe it or not, a seminar on prayer where we're actually going to pray. That'll be different, won't it? As you are going, serve. We live in a culture that serves itself. Some have suggested we're the most narcissistic culture on planet Earth. We're going to explore that and see if that's true. But here's what I do know is true. You cannot serve yourself and others at the same time. So we're going to take a look at Jesus' way of doing that. As you are going, serve. One that's uniquely my own, and I don't have near as much scriptural support for it, but I I think I'm right and I think you'll appreciate. As you are going, listen. We are the most chatterbox culture that has ever existed on planet Earth. And you know what? There are people out there, who are asking questions that they really don't want you to answer. They just need to voice the question. And somebody who will listen to them and not try to fix them will become the disciple maker they're looking for. So one of those days we're going to look at as you go, uh, listen. And then finally, in the words of Jesus' great commission, as you go, teach. You say, well, I don't have a gift of teaching. That's Neff's job. Well, the commission is for all of us. So what do I teach? And how do I do it? We're going to talk about that on one of these days. Awesome. Well thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank
0: you, <laughs> thank you so much, Blake. Um, we have much to chew on, much to be challenged over. So thank you for that. We, Enjoy your afternoon. Remember, the family frenzy is at two o'clock. If you want to volunteer, be out here at 1.30. And I need three um, people who live in the RVs this week. Sections, if you would come to me, I just have a small favor that I need to ask of you. So, three different RV people, just come to me here. All right. Thanks. Enjoy your afternoon.